With this series, we wanted to ask ourselves a number of questions. What is dissent? Which stories of dissent get told? Who is remembered and who is forgotten? Which bodies are always considered dissenting? And how can we draw upon the lives of dissenters in the past in the ways that we resist in the present? From the historical home of dissenters and abolitionists here in Newington Green, this series of talks aims to uncover histories of radicalism from the bottom up, finding inspiration from the past and hope in the present. For this session, we're discussing dissenting academies and radical education. Once again, our theme is intimately tied with histories of Newington Green and the Meeting House itself. It's easy to see the legacies of the local dissenting academies of anti-monarchists or Mary Wollstonecraft's school only a few buildings away. It may be harder to find remnants of the multifarious radical practices of teaching and pedagogy happening behind closed doors, between families and communities over meals and drinks, responding to an education system that is at best inadequate and at worst actively hostile. Schools, colleges and universities continue to function as places where the state attempts to control the ideology of its nation. Rather than spaces to liberate minds, schools, unfortunately, are being transformed into factories for weighing students, banning anti-capitalist thought, and not that it was present in the first place, and generally quashing any dreams of an otherwise that we might find in this place. Um, but where we can find hope is in the ways people have always managed to find ways out from these oppressive spaces, whether it's in radical publishing, black supplementary schools, teach outs, occupations, or organizing happening over the dinner table. People find ways to teach, learn, and resist together. And tonight, uh, to speak about his experiences, we'll be hearing from Ken Walpole. Ken is a writer and social historian who between 1969 and 1973 worked as an English teacher at Hackney Down School. Ken went on to work with the radical Hackney Bookshop Centerprise to encourage and publish work by young black and working class students that could be used to enlarge the range and subject matter of literature and history that could be used in the classroom. Uh, Ken, it's lovely to have you here with us tonight. Okay, well, thanks very much, Rory. Um, and I, I assume everybody can hear me. Um, I can hear myself now. Um, yes, I, I was pleased to be invited to join this because it did give a chance to kind of go back almost 50 years, what is 50 years, um, to a kind of time when I think the plates of kind of what the curriculum was, certainly in primary and secondary schools, really began to shift over issues of the representation of the increasingly uh, diverse community um, that was now represented in British society. I trained to be a teacher between 1965 and 1969 as an English teacher. And the big, big, big thing then wasn't actually multiculturalism. It was this notion that too often uh, the whole, the only role of children in school was to stay quiet and not to speak, not to have their voices heard. And this was literally true. And um, there was a whole kind of, uh, an older generation, much older than me, obviously all now past, uh, mostly women who'd kind of come up through Freudianism or um, through psychoanalysis, who were very keen to bring in notions of free expression or self-expression into the classroom. Uh, 
And this really began to create some very interesting tensions in schools. We were told when I was trained to be a teacher that unless you could actually encourage young people to talk about their own selves, their own lives, then they were never going to get validated within the education system. They would only ever be regarded as objects, but never as subjects of their own kind of identity. And this notion of self-expression became extremely um, important. And as teachers in the classroom began, you know, to listen to the stories the children told, they realized that there was an enormous gap between the lives of the children that they were teaching, their home lives, their aspirations, their, their communities, their friendships, the things they hoped for, or things they were scared of, and the world of kind of, particularly for us, and I was trained to be a junior secondary school teacher, the world of the reading book which had a kind of privilege, a completely uh, nuclear, middle-class nuclear family, completely un, um, uncontested, uh, very little and, and fairly wealthy, full of opportunities, but bore no relationship to the majority of lives of the children in English schools. And so it was probably, it was in the 60s as part of that much wider kind of radical uh, impulse in the 60s, uh, which eventually led in, in, in music to punk and all other kinds of things. But this notion that everybody has a story to tell and that education should be um, really based around people's experiences or there should be some kind of dynamic between the teacher and the student and in the sharing or discourse of how each person's life was being lived and how they understand what they were teaching. So um, uh, I came to Hackney in 1969 and went straight into Hackney Down School, which was a boys' school. Um, the pattern then, under really, was one boys' school, one girls' school, and one mixed school. So the majority of young people were taught in single-sex schools. And Hackney Downs had been a grammar school, but in 1969, it uh, became a comprehensive school. And when I arrived, I thought about 40% of the boys were Jewish, um, very, very few of them Orthodox Jewish, in fact hardly any of them were Orthodox Jewish, mostly secular Jewish students, but then, then we had a very large uh, in, number of young Afro-Caribbean uh, boys arriving into school and this created a, a real uh, issue for the teaching staff because they'd never had any, any young students before like them with, a, with such different experiences of life. Many had only been brought over fairly recently. Their parents had arrived first. They'd been brought up by grandparents. Um, there was lots of things, you know, that they were shocked by arriving. They had to remake their family relationships and so on. Um, and it was then that, um, you know, in, radical English teachers saw that uh, we should begin to start creating teaching materials that reflected um, the lives of the children. And of course, at, at this time, 1971, just down the road in Stepney, there was this famous kind of controversy when the teacher, Chris Searle, published a book of young people's poems called Stepney Words, and was actually sapped from teaching because he'd allowed young people to express their disillusionment with school, their uh, anxieties about society, their fear of racism, 
the many things that they felt was wrong with society. And uh, he was sacked as a result. But, and that, but, but this was, it is true that kind of you can look at certain periods when there are things going on simultaneously all around the country. You know, it's not a case of there's always only one place where something emerges. There's always something kind of in the walls, so to speak, that uh, things are going on. And in London in the 60s, uh, English teaching became very radicalised through an organisation called the London Association for Teachers of English. They had conferences and meetings, and uh, the focus for, or for that was new teaching material. So, uh, I mean, a, a, an early thing I wrote, um, actually, probably in 1971, was for the magazine New Society, which was an, a, a, an essay called Ladybird Life, which looked at Ladybird books and the world, uh, the reading of the books produced by Ladybird, and the world they kind of, they were, they were used in most primary schools, and the world they represented seemed light years away from anything that the, um, the children in the schools were actually experiencing themselves. So, at Hackney Downs then we began to kind of recall some of the young people or start publishing even their short stories and poems as Chris Serve had done down the road at Stepney. Um, and we were also beginning to get quite excited about new technologies which now seem amazingly kind of uh, archaic but a duplicating machine, uh, uh, an instant camera and a cassette tape recorder, um, we felt kind of liberated us to, to kind of remake the world. Um, so one of the things we did was that uh, there was a, um, a young boy in my, one of my classes called Vivian Ashwood, a young Afro-Caribbean boy, who was actually uh, at, the, at that time in a care home. And he, uh, I got to know him quite well, and he went to a teacher for, uh, um, supplementary English teaching. His, his reading and writing wasn't very good. But on the other hand, he began to write these extraordinary poems. And they were so extraordinary that um, this other teacher and I, we just kind of typed them out and just used them to teach other students in the school. And I've got one here. Uh, this is genuinely the original, right? Vivian did the cover. It's stuck together with um, two staples. Uh, and it's got all his poems in. And uh, they worked a treat. I mean, the other children loved them. Other teachers wanted to borrow them. Then we kind of lent them to people in other schools. And the demand began to increase. Uh, so the next thing we did, uh, was produced one that actually had a price on the cover, five pence. And that's Vivian standing in the park outside Hackney Down School. And we, we couldn't keep up with the demand. And exactly at this time, the librarian at Hackney Down School was a woman called Margaret Gosley. And her partner was a black American draft resistor called Glenn Thompson. And Glenn Thompson, and this is where it's very interesting, this notion of the Radical Academy. Glenn Thompson had come to Europe, you know, to escape the draft. He didn't want to go to Vietnam. And he traveled around Europe and he got very fascinated by a tradition in some of the Scandinavian countries of having a bookshop and a cafe together as a meeting place, but also where you might have discussion groups. 
And he thought this was really rather good in the sense that too often education took place in rather um, austere surroundings. It was not connected to the street, had no kind of social support like a coffee machine or anything like that. Um, and wasn't, and was kind of detached from kind of uh, everyday life. So he'd come to Hackney with Margaret and they wanted to set up a bookshop cafe, which they did in, in Dawson Lane. And that opened in literally 1971, May 1971. It was um, Dawson Lane, uh, one of the buildings is still there. It was, it was scheduled to be demolished in two years in 1971. It's still there, um, preserved or part of a conservation area. So Glenn set up this bookshop. And I knew Margaret because she was a school librarian. Margaret knew young Vivian as well. And so we talked with Glenn Thompson about, well, there's such a demand for this little pamphlet. Can we start thinking about publishing children's writing? And that's what we did. And in the next five years, um, that's the next iteration of Vivian, that's Tempe. And the final iteration is this one. Um, in the next 10 years, something like 10,000 copies of Vivian's poems were printed and sold. And his poems appeared in two of the major first, initial great anthologies of Afro-Caribbean writing in Britain. The one Bluefoot Traveller by, um, I'll remember his name in a minute, but um, uh, uh, James Berry, black, uh, a very prestigious black poet. So um, the, 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 the only really tragic thing about this was that the Vivian died at the age of 18 in a house fire. It wasn't the New Cross house fire, but uh, in a flat of his own in Stoke Newington, actually only a hundred yards from Unitarian Church. Um, that was awful. Um, but the kind of interest in, in this, the appetite to really open up schools or the teaching materials to these new voices was really a very, uh, very enormous. So one a, a thing that I then did with another person I've been at teacher training college with um, was to do, in a way, the first reading book, possibly, um, this country, uh, this Hackney Hotel Adventure, um, first reading book that had black children, white children playing together with kind of um, this sort of scenario that you don't normally find in children's reading books, this kind of setting for stories. I love this photograph because it's a bit like, there's the four boys there, they're kind of like in some Italian, um, uh, nouveau vague uh, film but um, this was going on and this was beginning this was going on all over the country this kind of absolutely turning the world the turning the the discourse and, and the, the material of the teaching of reading upside down by bringing new images and new representations into the school um, Centerprise then decided that they would actually go into publishing full time as well as running the bookshop. And I was the first person uh, to be appointed to do that. But we, 
uh, I was just really the administrator. We had lots of different people running um, writers groups and workshops, and we had lots of teachers coming in, bringing students in for day classes or and so on. Then I think the great thing about teaching was that you could actually take children out of the classroom and wander down the down the canal or to go down Ridley Road Market occasionally, uh, which would be absolutely forbidden now. The idea of letting children out of school during daytime and letting them actually see the world outside. Is, uh, uh, and I was very much influenced then by the anarchist Colin Ward, who uh, I think in 1974 did a book called The Exploding School, which was absolutely recommending that the whole point of school is to, as a base for going out into the world and enabling young people and young children uh, to understand how society works by visiting places and talking to people. And that's what we did. We did also got, I mean, I got young people taking tobacco callers home and talking to their parents, interviewing their parents about their lives and they were bringing it back to school and we were discussing it in class. So it was this kind of opening up the school to the community. I'll just show two more um, things because they're, they're rather, they're lovely productions and they're nothing to do with me. They were both published by Centrepride. Um, a lovely collection of short stories by a young Nigerian woman, Stedary Beckway, called Teenage Encounters, a young woman. And, and then this was based on a, um, a, writer, a black writer, young black writers group, Oops. Talking Blues that was held at Centre Prize for about three years running. Um, and, and this was proliferated. Um, and is, this is why I'm, I'm sad that we couldn't, Kahinda couldn't join us tonight because I would have been interested to see how, how he reacts to now or how he, how he as a different generation would look back uh, and understand it. But um, the excitement about Technology now seems kind of immature or naive because uh, all those things were rapidly taken over by offset printing, video, and now obviously digital. But I still think the this um, the notion, the pedagogical pedagogical notion that education is a conversation between people uh, and their experiences and the sharing of experiences. It is still central, which is why I've always uh, preferred, you know, doing talks in bookshops or youth clubs or churches or, you know, or meeting or running workshops, writers' workshops, anywhere but in a school building or a university. Um, because I think, you know, this notion of the Radical Academy has always had this strong dissenting tradition that it's outside the, the, the institutions of power um, and it's kind of um, these are spaces that we create ourselves where we can genuinely talk to each other so that was that kind of that was that experience um, and there is a book um, which a history of, of the early days of enterprise and uh, it's called uh, the lion green mystery because the bookshop did last for nearly 40 years, although it was, it was only for three years at Dorset Lane and then it went to Kings and High Street. But all kinds of, um, all kinds of, I, I didn't, I stayed off for five years and then left to, to do other things. I also thought that one should leave 
after a certain amount of time, I'm not really in favour of people hanging on in there for too long. Um, uh, stultifying and, get, and getting on everybody else's nerves. Um, but, um, but um, and I've given Amy and Rory a link so you can actually read this book online. The whole book is online. And it is the story of those workshops, the adult literacy projects, the girls projects, um, you know, the black, the black writers groups. It's got all those in it. And it tells the story of how this bookshop did genuinely become a kind of dissenting radical academy. Now, I'm happy to um, answer any questions about that um, and uh, or share thoughts and ideas, but that's, uh, as I say, I'm sorry that Kenda couldn't be with us because it's a bit um, one-sided, but there we are. Over back to you, Rory and Amy. Thanks so much, Ken. That was really, really fascinating. I've kind of it sent, set my mind off in so many different directions. Um, if anyone has any questions, uh, please feel free to write them in the chat or you're also welcome to unmute yourself and ask a question directly. Um, so I'll just give people space to do that now, just in case anyone does have a question. I had no idea that you were Vivian Isherwood's teacher, Ken. That's fantastic because I read all of those poems and couldn't believe that, I mean, because, you know, there, there's uh, really awful experiences that you'd hope that lots of children wouldn't have to go through. And yeah. also, you know, he's swearing and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's so silly, isn't it? But then to, to see like children's poetry where they're swearing and they're being encouraged to express themselves. Even I was like, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> and it's, it, should, it shouldn't be like that. But I remember feeling like that and thinking, wow, I can't believe that someone actually worked on this. So that's amazing that you were part of that. Yeah. Um... And uh, I think about, well, about four years, I think around the time that that book was launched, that's probably about four years ago, there was a, an event at the, um, the Hackney Museum and um, two young black actors um, read the poems, um, uh, uh, Vivian's poems, and Vivian's sister was there. Uh, and we all kind of had a good cry. <laughs> um, but it was a wonderful, wonderful event. And um, but I, it was it was more um, Vivian's because uh, of course that then they called her she was the remedial teacher. Now what language is that? You know, um, but I was his form teacher and Anne Pettit was his remedial teacher, and together we kind of published the poems. But um, yeah, uh, and uh, since then one one is always astonished by just how how fantastic writing there is out there. Um, you've just got to let the voices come through. Uh, it, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, not everybody at the school then approved of um, this. Uh, you know, I, as you say, Amy, a, a poem that had a swear word in. I mean, they weren't bad. I mean, it was just, he was fed up with um, being knocked about in his care home and, uh, or being bullied or people not taking him seriously, or people not listening to him. Um, and, you know, th th this is hard stuff. And it it's um, painful stuff, but it it's, it's an antidote to that world of kind of happy, smiling children in 
beautiful gardens um, where nothing ever goes wrong. And, and when we try and compare our lives to those lives, as like we all do when we grow up. Now, I mean, the world is always better in the books than it. we think, seem to think it is for ourselves, but obviously we learn otherwise. Um, but uh, it was, yeah, it was um, a very important lesson. I kind of actually just had a follow-up question to that because it seems like what you were able to do and what everyone at Centerprise is able to do is uh, stick to a quite maybe like profound and not very common idea in education now, which is that like children are actual human beings who have thoughts and lives and um, dreams and pain. And I, I guess I wanted to ask if you if you had particular pushback from either staff or parents um, in relation to the, the 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 ways you were interacting with students or treating students. There was a little bit. Um, there was a little bit. I, I do remember that um, one parent did come up to the school and and it was okay, but she she because. Um, I'd ask, I'd ask some, well, I'd ask the class uh, as one of the exercises to interview one of their grandparents. And uh, the, the one parent came up and said, I don't want him uh, talking to his grandfather, or I don't, I don't want, you know, his grandfather, I don't want him to know what his grandfather did and so on. I mean, and that, that's completely understandable. Obviously, they have to be, you know, everybody's got the right not to tell their lives uh, as much as they have the right to tell their lives. Um, but I think, no, I mean, so, uh, what is interesting is that some of the other teachers couldn't believe that the children wrote this stuff. They thought, well, you do, surely you did it. I mean, you didn't, Vivian didn't write that, did he? You know, I, well, he did, you know. Um, and... Uh, but then the, you, there's a problem that what, what do you do with it? Because in the school, you couldn't do anything with it. I mean, in, I gave up teaching literally because I couldn't stand marking anymore. Uh, and because I knew at the end, you know, at the end of the year, everything goes in the dustbin, all the exercise books and the, 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 the exam, the things they wrote, the exams and the artwork they did, you know, for their, you know, it was just going on the bonfire somewhere. And this notion that it's all rehearsal, that, you know, all the things you do at school are simply rehearsing or they're practising as though nothing actually is ever achieved. And all the time in education, people are achieving things and doing th things that actually come, come out sometimes fully formed and should be preserved. But the idea that education... You're just only ever practicing in education. You're only ever kind of, um, you know, uh, training or whatever some ghastly word like that is. It's though it's not. It's not real. But education, what ha happens in education is real life, and it is. It often is the end thing. It's the end product. It's the. It is the great experience. Is the, that relationship? What goes on in that discussion? That, yeah, it's that's and anybody who's taught evening classes knows this that you know the most amazing things happen in evening classes i love adult education 
And I, you know, I think one of the things we might take out of this whole series is really to recommit ourselves to continuing education. Um, because it's, for me, it's, oh, it's fan fantastic, you know. Um, re really, very second chance education, lifetime learning, you know, changing your life at 40 and trying something completely new. All these, all these renewed opportunities. I think that's what education is about. It's not through that kind of, you get one go and it's only, it's only training anyway. It's not for me, yeah. Do you feel that there's less opportunities to do that now? I mean, as someone who, oh, Katie says she agrees on the chat. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, I tend to look maybe, or, or maybe some people say sometimes I look back at those kind of, that period with rose-tinted glasses and I, I didn't live through that. And, you know, these periods of that, either GLC giving lots of money to things and that kind of thing. And I'm aware that, you know, I maybe only see one kind of uh, view of that. But it seems to me that those opportunities, those adult education courses, classes, environments, community printing projects are much, much less than they are, than they were before. Ken, do you do you agree or do you think that the Internet has kind of picked up on that? I, I have to say I don't really know. I mean, well, obviously, we've been badly damaged by COVID that stops a lot of these things to happen. Um, and I'm also shocked, really, by, I, I can't believe, um, I mean, I do think adult education does need some public finance, because uh, it's so important to many people, gives them the second chance. I mean, we used to run writers' workshops, kind of, you know, 50p a pound a session for the coffee and the biscuits. But I now see kind of so many things like, you know, six six course session with a writer of 150 pounds and i i just think no you know that's not it's um it's not right um uh you know there has there has to be another kind of economy adult education or continuing education needs a, a different economic model um than self-financing because in the end i mean it's um it's it's really it's, you know, it's really part of, you know, how people are able to renew themselves continuously through life and not just take the, the verdict of what was given to them at the end of the, when they left school or when they finally left universities. That was the end. That was the final verdict on their development, their, their intellectual development or educational development. So, no, continuing education, I think, really does need a new economy. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, so your comments about about how education is is conceived, um, the extent to which they apply today versus when you were teaching, or areas where you've seen progress or lack of progress. Um, it's a, a very difficult question. I, um, The, the fact is that the zeitgeist in the 60s and early 70s was more or less accepted by certainly most English teachers. This, this notion that you can't keep children silent anymore and that their experiences have to come in to the classroom and be part of um, the, their education. And they, I mean, a lot of this work uh, 
it was done, as I say, by a lot of old, older women teachers who'd come up through the psychoanalytic tradition, but who'd kind of running, running schools, headmasters, very progressive head teachers of head teachers rather of primary schools, primary education. Um, and, and, and then, I mean, Freudianism was big. And so this notion of self-expression, letting it come out, uh, was actually widely accepted in the 60s and 70s, much more than it is now. Uh, where we're, um, which is everything now, education is about constraining, it's back to training and the national curriculum and jumping through hoops. Uh, so I, I think it was easier then. And I don't know, in fact, because in a way it was more exciting because it was new, we were doing this, but now luckily and happily we do have a much wider range of materials to use in the class. And, you know, the, the novels, the fiction, the poetry, the music coming out um, and being shared in, in schools at least is, is a lot more, more diverse than it was, absolutely. Um, so a, a lot of, uh, I mean, these are genuine achievements, I think, and they're, they're things that we should defend. And they're, and they're, and they're, they're very, I mean, they are just genuinely very vibrant now, I think, in, in the culture, the, the notion of diversity in creativity uh, and uh, all voices being heard and all, all representations being given significant uh, space in the culture. This is all, I think, much more accepted. I hope so. I'm already... I really appreciate your just hearing your passion <laughs> for education as generally it really reminds me of my my parents actually because um, uh -huh. I well I was raised by both my parents were primary school teachers but also um, I have two mums they're lesbian and they have talked a lot about I guess being teachers during section 28 being yeah. a thing and um I, I think it, it's left a real, a real kind of stain on a lot of um, a lot of educational practices in this country generally, and not not just specifically, uh, you know, that section twenty itself um, in terms of restricting materials about, you know, gay people and queer people, but that I guess the the idea that the government can restrict. Yeah materials generally about what is taught in schools and I, I, I see a lot I, I'm worried because I see a lot of that um, attitude kind of having a bit of a resurgence at the moment yeah. um, so I don't know if you it's not the best question I just I don't know if you have any thoughts on maybe where where education is currently headed in this country and if you maybe see ways out in you know supplementary education or these educational spaces found outside of schools themselves. No, I think you're right, Rory. I think, I mean, you know, the notion of the museums, you know, the, the, uh, the you know, the minister can tell museums what they can or cannot exhibit. I mean, it's, it's atrocious. I mean, there's, um, so I think, yeah, there is obviously now a pressure downwards really to try and restrict um, the cultural agenda or the, the range, the cultural range, the, the broad, you know, the brand width of what is, uh, which is why I suppose I've always thrown my lot in with um, 
the alternative scene um, and preferring to work outside in, in, in institutions um, because I think you know they that will that will always in in some ways influence the mainstream um, the mainstream can't resist actually or every idea that comes out of um, other ways so I yeah I think I I, I I think there, you know, there's lo so much more. I think needs to be. I think, on the whole, primary schools in Britain have been pretty good places. I think there's a general feeling that it's all. It's been a much more homely, friendly, you know, um, experience. Secondary schools, I think, are pretty dreadful. Um, but I think in primary schools were for a, you know have always you know have been much much more certainly much more influenced by uh, psychology uh, and child development studies and Winnicott and all that stuff. I mean, really, whereas that I mean, talk to talk to anybody at Hackney Downs when I arrived there. Uh, so all the the all male staff about Winnicott or Freud or uh, they wouldn't know who you're talking about. Not, I'm not sounds rather cruel, but uh, there wasn't that kind of notion that um, other, you know people have these kind of life, you know, these mentalities and these kind of rich richnesses inside them. Um, I just wanted to, because um, we're on the topic of kind of like publishing and people's experiences and stories, Caroline, I don't know if you wanted to um, say a couple of words about the zine that you're working with us on about community writing. Hi. <laughs> Hello everyone. Yeah, I'm Caroline. Um, thanks, so much. thanks so much for your presentation, Ken, and to Amy and Rory for hosting. Um, I found it so so interesting and inspiring. Um, yeah, I'm a volunteer at the Meeting House and I've been um, working with Amy and Nick on um, this new publishing project, which we've called Enzine, um, after the postcode prefix. Um, and yeah, Amy's just put some information in the chat, but um, basically, I mean, your talk got me kind of thinking about pos possible ways that we might try and engage sort of younger people as well and try to make it a sort of home for as, as many different kinds of aspiring writers as possible. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, it, one of the main um, inspirations for the project was um, Centerprise and the idea of a Hackney autobiography, um, which we found kind of um, really, yeah, like a really a really good sort of springboard for um, continuing that idea of a kind of living mm. autobiography of, of the local area. Um, so yeah, there's some basically it's it we're hoping it will be a quarterly publication, and um, we've at the moment sort of been setting out loose themes for each issue. So the first theme is local spaces and places, um, and. So yeah, and, and then the lead up to each issue, we'll have kind of workshops and things at the meeting house where we can look at texts like, for example, poems by Vivian Usherwood and other um, sort of case studies of, of, um, of uh, community publishing. I know Amy's worked on um, a similar project in, uh, that was based in Peckham. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, just to make it kind of like an open space where people can talk about what they'd like to get out of the zine and what they'd like to kind of, um, what might be possible ways to use the workshop space as well. Um, so yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm sure that we, maybe we could talk more about this another time, but, um, and make some, make some connections with kind of the work that you did through Centerprise as well, yeah. Thanks, Caroline. I kind of threw you in at the deep end there, but I thought it would be a good opportunity to, to mention. So I put a link in the chat. If anyone wants to contribute to Enzine, you might have some existing writing or you might just be interested in doing some writing um, and then come along. Uh, you can contribute. There's an email you can send your work to. If you want us to, to, Caroline's a poet in her own right. If you want Caroline to support you with your writing, then she can or Nick can. Um, and if not, we will just publish it without uh, any edits or suggestions. You know, it's your own work. Um, and uh, otherwise, um, and also we have an event on the 29th of July. It's in the link. And um, that will just be people that are interested or maybe interested in, in contributing can come along and we can have a drink and have a chat and um, you can see if it's for you. So um, hopefully we can carry on some of this, some of this work in the tradition that that Ken's been talking to us about today. Um, does anybody have any final questions or, or comments? Um, I feel like this is probably a good time to draw things to a close unless anyone has anything to add. Um, so do, do put anything in the chat or come out just in case there is anything you want to say. Okay, well, nice to meet everybody. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll bump into each other fairly soon. Thanks so much, Ken. We've got some version of the Literature Festival, I think, coming up in September, so we, I'm sure we'll all be bumping into each other then. Yeah. Okay. Right. Bye for now, then. Thank Bye. you so much, Ken. Bye. We really, really appreciated you yeah. speaking. Bye. Thank you.